and ever watching, working, laboring, striving, and toiling to extend the knowledge of Jesus Christ upon earth. Such men live in the full light of the sun, and therefore their hearts are always warm. Such men water others, and therefore they are watered themselves. Their hearts are like a garden daily refreshed by the dew of the Holy Ghost. They honor God, and so God honors them. I would not be mistaken in saying this. I would not appear to speak slightingly of any believer. I know that the Lord takes pleasure in all His people. Psalm 149.4 There is not one from the least to the greatest, from the smallest child in the kingdom of God to the oldest warrior in the battle against Satan. There is not one in whom the Lord Jesus Christ does not take great pleasure. We are all His children, and however weak and feeble some of us may be, as the Father pitieth His children, so does the Lord pity them that love and fear Him. Psalm 103, verse 13. We are all the plants of His own planting, and though many of us are poor, weakly exotics, scarcely keeping life together in a foreign soil, yet, as the gardener loves that which his hands have reared, so does the Lord Jesus love the poor sinners that trust in Him. But while I say this, I do also believe that the Lord takes special pleasure in those who are zealous for Him, in those who give themselves body, soul, and spirit to extend His glory in this world. To them He reveals Himself as He does not to others. To them He shows things that other men never see. He blesses the work of their hands. He cheers them with spiritual consolations which others only know by the hearing of the ear. They are men after His own heart, for they are men more like Himself than others. None have such joy and peace in believing. None have such sensible comfort in their religion. None have so much of heaven upon earth. Deuteronomy 11.21 None see and feel so much of the consolations of the gospel as those who are zealous, earnest, thoroughgoing, devoted Christians. For the sake of our own souls, if there were no other reason, it is good to be zealous, to be very zealous in our religion. Be as zeal is good for ourselves individually, so it is also good for the professing Church of Christ generally. Nothing so much keeps alive true religion as a leaven of zealous Christians scattered to and fro throughout the church. Like salt, they prevent the whole body falling into a state of corruption. None but men of this kind can revive churches when ready to die. It is impossible to overestimate the debt that all Christians owe to zeal. The greatest mistake the rulers of a church can make is to drive zealous men out of its pale. By so doing, they drain out the lifeblood of the system and hasten on ecclesiastical decline and death. Zeal is, in truth, 
that grace which God seems to delight to honor. Look through the list of Christians who have been eminent for usefulness. Who are the men that have left the deepest and most indelible marks on the church of their day? Who are the men that God has generally honored to build up the walls of his Zion and turn the battle from the gate? Not so much men of learning and literary talents as men of zeal. Bishop Latimer was not such a deeply read scholar as Cranmer or Ridgely. He could not quote fathers from memory as they did. He refused to be drawn into arguments about antiquity. He stuck to his Bible. Yet it is not too much to say that no English reformer made such a lasting impression on the nation as old Latimer did. And what was the reason? His simple zeal. Baxter, the Puritan, was not equal to some of his contemporaries in intellectual gifts. It is no disparagement to say that he does not stand on a level with Manton or Owen, yet few men probably exercised so wide an influence on the generation in which he lived. And what was the reason? his burning zeal. Whitfield and Wesley and Berridge and then were inferior in mental attainments to Bishops Butler and Watson, but they produced effects on the people of this country which fifty Butlers and Watsons would probably never have produced. They saved the Church of England from ruin, and what was one secret of their power? Their zeal. These men stood forward at turning points in the history of the church. They bore unmoved storms of opposition and persecution. They were not afraid to stand alone. They cared not, though their motives were misinterpreted. They counted all things but loss for the truth's sake. They were each and all and every one eminently men of one thing, and that one thing was to advance the glory of God and to maintain His truth in the world. They were all fire, and so they lighted others. They were wide awake, and so they awakened others. They were all alive, and so they quickened others. They were always working, and so they shamed others into working too. They came down upon men like Moses from the mount, they shone as if they had been in the presence of God. They carried to and fro with them as they walked their course through the world, something of the atmosphere and savor of heaven itself. There is a sense in which it may be said that zeal is contagious. Nothing is more useful to the professors of Christianity than to see a real live Christian a thoroughly zealous man of God. They may rail at him, they may carpet him, they may pick holes in his conduct, they may look shy upon him, they may not understand him any more than men understand a new comet when a new comet appears, but insensibly a zealous man does them good. He opens their eyes, 
He makes them feel their own sleepiness. He makes their own great darkness visible. He obliges them to see their own barrenness. He compels them to think whether they like it or not. What are we doing? Are we not no better than mere cumberers of the ground? It may be sadly true that one sinner destroyeth much good, but it is also a blessed truth that one zealous Christian can do much good. Yes, one single zealous man in a town, one zealous man in a congregation, one zealous man in a society, one zealous man in a family may be a great, a most extensive blessing. How many machines of usefulness such a man sets a-going! How much Christian activity he often calls into being, which would otherwise have slept! How many fountains he opens, which would otherwise have been sealed! Verily, there is a deep mine of truth in those words of the Apostle Paul to the Corinthians, Your zeal hath provoked very many. 2 Corinthians 9, verse 2. See, but as zeal is good for the church and for individuals, so zeal is good for the world. Where would the missionary work be if it were not for zeal? Where would our city missions and ragged schools be if it were not for zeal? Where would our district visiting and pastoral aid societies be if it were not for zeal, where would be our societies for rooting out sin and ignorance, for finding out the dark places of the earth and recovering poor lost souls? Where would be all these glorious instruments for good if it were not for Christian zeal? Zeal called these institutions into being, and zeal keeps them at work when they have begun. Zeal gathers a few despised men and makes them the nucleus of many a powerful society. Zeal keeps up the collections of a society when it is formed. Zeal prevents men from becoming lazy and sleepy when the machine is large and begins to get favor from the world. Zeal raises up men to go forth, putting their lives in their hands like Moffat and Williams in our own day. Zeal supplies their place when they are gathered into the garner and taken home. What would become of the ignorant masses who crowd the lanes and alleys of our overgrown cities if it were not for Christian zeal? Governments can do nothing with them. They cannot make laws that will meet the evil. The vast majority of professing Christians have no eyes to see it. Like the priest and Levite, they pass by on the other side. But zeal has eyes to see, and a heart to feel, and a head to devise, and a tongue to plead, and hands to work, and feet to travel, in order to rescue poor souls and raise them from their low estate. Zeal does not stand poring over difficulties, but simply says, Here are souls perishing, and something shall be done. Zeal does not shrink back because there are anicums in the way. 
It looks over their heads like Moses on Pisgah and says, The land shall be possessed. Zeal does not wait for company and tarry till good works are fashionable. It goes forward like a forlorn hope and trust that others will follow by and by. Ah, the world little knows what a debt it owes to Christian zeal, how much crime it has checked, how much sedition it has prevented, how much public discontent it has calmed, how much obedience to law and love of order it has produced, how many souls it has saved. Yes, and I believe we know little what might be done if every Christian was a zealous man. How much if ministers were more like Bickerstaff than Whitfield and McShane? How much if laymen were more like Howard and Wilberforce and Thornton and Naismith than George Moore? Oh, for the world's sake, as well as your own, resolve, labor, strive, to be a zealous Christian. Let everyone who professes to be a Christian beware of checking zeal. Seek it, cultivate it. Try to blow up the fire in your own heart and the hearts of others, but never, never check it. Beware of throwing cold water on zealous souls whenever you meet with them. Beware of nipping in the bud this precious grace when first it shoots. If you are a parent, beware of checking it in your children. If you are a husband, beware of checking it in your wife. If you are a brother, beware of checking it in your sister. And if you are a minister, beware of checking it in the members of your congregation. It is a shoot of heaven's own planting. Beware of crushing it for Christ's sake. Zeal may make mistakes. Zeal may need directing. Zeal may want guiding, controlling, and advising. Like the elephants on ancient fields of battle, it may sometimes do injury to its own side. But zeal does not need damping in a wretched, cold, corrupt, miserable world like this. Zeal, like John Knox pulling down the Scotch monasteries, may hurt the feelings of narrow-minded and sleepy Christians. It may offend the prejudices of those old-fashioned religionists who hate everything new and, like those who wanted soldiers and sailors to go on wearing pigtails, abhor all change. But zeal in the end will be justified by its results. Zeal, like John Knox, in the long run of life will do infinitely more good than harm. There is little danger of there ever being too much zeal for the glory of God. God forgive those who think there is. You know little of human nature. You forget that sickness is far more contagious than health, and that it is much easier to catch a chill than impart a glow. Depend upon it, the church seldom needs a bridle, but often needs a spur. It seldom needs to be checked, it often needs to be urged on. And now in conclusion, 
Let me try to apply this subject to the conscience of every person who reads this paper. It is a warning subject, an arousing subject, an encouraging subject, according to the state of our several hearts. I wish, by God's help, to give every reader his portion. One, first of all, let me offer a warning to all who make no decided profession of religion. There are thousands and tens of thousands, I fear, in this condition. If you are one, the subject before you is full of solemn warning. Oh, that the Lord in mercy may incline your heart to receive it. I ask you then in all affection, where is your zeal in religion? With the Bible before me, I may well be bold in asking, but with your life before me, I may well tremble as to the answer. I ask again, where is your zeal for the glory of God? Where is your zeal for extending Christ's gospel through an evil world? Zeal which was the characteristic of the Lord Jesus, zeal which is the characteristic of the angels, zeal which shines forth in all the brightest Christians. Where is your zeal, unconverted reader? Where is your zeal indeed? You know well it is nowhere at all. You know well you see no beauty in it. You know well it is scorned and cast out as evil by you and your companions. You know well it has no place, no portion, no standing ground in the religion of your soul. It is not perhaps that you know not what it is to be zealous in a certain way. You have zeal, but it is all misapplied. It is all earthly. It is all about the things of time. It is not zeal for the glory of God. It is not zeal for the salvation of souls. Yes, many a man has zeal for the newspaper, but not for the Bible. Zeal for the daily reading of the times, but no zeal for the daily reading of God's blessed word. Many a man has zeal for the account book and the business book, but no zeal about the book of life and the last great account. Zeal about Australian and Californian gold, but no zeal about the unsearchable riches of Christ. Many a man has zeal about his earthly concerns, his family, his pleasures, his daily pursuits, but no zeal about God and heaven and eternity. If this is the state of anyone who is reading this paper, awake, I do beseech you to see your gross folly. You cannot live forever. You are not ready to die. You are utterly unfit for the company of saints and angels. Awake, be zealous and repent. Awake to see the harm you are doing. You are putting arguments in the hands of infidels by your shameful coldness. You are pulling down as fast as ministers build. You are helping the devil. Awake, be zealous and repent. Awake to see your childish inconsistency. 
What can be more worthy of zeal than eternal things, than the glory of God, than the salvation of souls? Surely, if it is good to labor for rewards that are temporal, it is a thousand times better to labor for those that are eternal. Awake, be zealous and repent. Go and read that long neglected Bible. Take up that blessed book which you have and perhaps never use. Read that New Testament through. Do you find nothing there to make you zealous, to make you earnest about your soul? Go and look at the cross of Christ. Go and see how the Son of God there shed His precious blood for you, how He suffered and groaned and died for you, how He poured out His soul as an offering for sin in order that you, sinful brother or sister, might not perish but have eternal life. Go and look at the cross of Christ and never rest till you feel some zeal for your own soul, some zeal for the glory of God, some zeal for the extension of the gospel throughout the world. Once more, I say, awake, be zealous, and repent. Two, let me in the next place say something to arouse those who make a profession of being decided Christians and are yet lukewarm in their practice. There are only too many, I regret to say, in this state of soul. If you are one, there is much in this subject which ought to lead you to searchings of heart. Let me speak to your conscience. To you also I desire to put the question in all brotherly affection, where is your zeal? Where is your zeal for the glory of God and for extending the gospel throughout the world? You know well it is very low. You know well that your zeal is a little feeble, glimmering spark that just lives and no more. It is like a thing ready to die. Revelation 3.2 Surely there is a fault somewhere if this is the case. This state of things ought not to be. You, the child of God, you redeemed at so glorious a price, you ransomed with such precious blood, you who are an heir of glory such as no tongue ever yet told or I saw, surely you ought to be a man of another kind. Surely your zeal ought not to be so small, I deeply feel that this is a painful subject to touch upon. I do it with reluctance and with a constant remembrance of my own unprofitableness. Nevertheless, truth ought to be spoken. The plain truth is that many believers in the present day seem so dreadfully afraid of doing harm that they hardly ever dare to do good. There are many who are fruitful in objections, but barren in actions, rich in wet blankets, but poor in anything like Christian fire. They are like the Dutch deputies recorded in the history of the last century who would never allow Marlborough to venture anything and by their excessive caution prevented many a victory being won. 
Truly, in looking round the church of Christ, a man might sometimes think that God's kingdom had come and God's will was being done upon earth. So small is the zeal that some believers show. It is vain to deny it. I need not go far for evidence. I point to societies for doing good to the heathen, the colonies, and the dark places of our own land. Languishing and standing still for want of active support, I ask, is this zeal? I point to thousands of miserable guinea subscriptions which are never missed by the givers, and yet make up the sum of their Christian liberality. I ask, is this zeal? I point to false doctrine allowed to grow up in parishes and families without an effort being made to check it, while so-called believers look on and content themselves with wishing it was not so. I ask, is this zeal? Would the apostles have been satisfied with such a state of things? We know they would not. If the conscience of anyone who read this paper plead guilty to any participation in the shortcomings I have spoken of, I call upon him in the name of the Lord to awake, be zealous, and repent. Let not zeal be confined to Lincoln's Inn, the Temple, and Westminster, to banks and shops and counting houses. Let us see the same zeal in the Church of Christ. Let not zeal be abundant to lead forlorn hopes, or get gold from Australia, or travel over thick-ribbed ice in voyages of discovery, but defective to send the gospel to the heathen, or to pluck Roman Catholics like brands from the fire, or to enlighten the dark places of the colonies of this great land. Never were there such doors of usefulness opened, never were there so many opportunities for doing good? I loathe that squeamishness which refuses to help religious works if there is a blemish about the instrument by which the work is carried on. At this rate, we might never do anything at all. Let us resist the feeling if we are tempted by it. It is one of Satan's devices. It is better to work with feeble instruments than not to work at all. At all events, try to do something for God and Christ, something against ignorance and sin. Give, correct, teach, exhort, visit, pray, according as God enables you. Only make up your mind that all can do something, and resolve that by you, at any rate, something shall be done. If you have only one talent, do not bury it in the ground. Try to live so as to be missed. There is far more to be done in twelve hours than most of us have ever yet done on any day in our lives. Think of the precious souls which are perishing while you are sleeping. Be taken up with your inward conflicts, if you will. Go on anatomizing your own feelings and pouring over your own corruptions if you are so determined. But remember, all this time souls are going to hell and 
you might do something to save them by working, by giving, by writing, by begging, and by prayer. Oh, awake, be zealous, and repent. Think of the shortness of time. You will soon be gone. You will have no opportunity for works of mercy in another world, in heaven. There will be no ignorant people to instruct and no unconverted to reclaim. Whatever you do must be done now. Oh, when are you going to begin? Awake, be zealous and repent. Think of the devil and his zeal to do harm. It was a solemn saying of old Bernard when he said that Satan would rise up in judgment against some people at the last day because he had shown more zeal to ruin souls than they had to save them. Away, be zealous and repent. Think of your Savior and all his zeal for you. Think of him in Gethsemane and on Calvary shedding his blood for sinners. Think of his life and death, his sufferings and his doings. This he has done for you. What are you doing for him? Oh, resolve that for the time to come you will spend and be spent for Christ. Awake, be zealous, and repent. Three, last of all, let me encourage all readers of this paper who are truly zealous Christians. I have but one request to make, and that is that you will persevere. I do beseech you to hold fast your zeal and never let it go. I do beseech you never to go back from your first works, never to leave your first love, never to let it be said of you that your first things were better than your last. Beware of cooling down. You have only to be lazy and to sit still and you will soon lose all your warmth. You will soon become another man from what you are now. Oh, do not think this a needless exhortation. It may be very true that wise young believers are very rare, but it is no less true that zealous old believers are very rare also. Never allow yourself to think that you can do too much that you can spend and be spent too much for Christ's cause. For one man that does too much, I will show you a thousand who do not do enough. Rather, think that the night cometh when no man can work. John 9, 4 And give, collect, teach, visit, work, pray, as if you were doing it for the last time. Lay to heart the words of that noble mind and Jansenist who said, when told that he ought to rest a little, what should we rest for? Have we not all eternity to rest in? Fear not the reproach of men. Faint not because you are sometimes abused. Heed it not if you are sometimes called bigot enthusiast, fanatic, madman, and fool. There is nothing disgraceful in these titles. 
they have often been given to the best and wisest of men. If you are only to be zealous when you are praised for it, if the wheels of your zeal must be oiled by the world's commendation, your zeal will be but short-lived. Care not for the praise or frown of man. There is but one thing worth caring for, and that is the praise of God. There is but one question worth asking about our actions. How will they look in the day of judgment? Chapter 9 Freedom If the Son shall make you free, ye shall be free indeed. John 8.36 The subject before our eyes deserves a thousand thoughts. It should ring in the ears of Englishmen and Scotsmen like the voice of a trumpet. We live in a land which is the very cradle of freedom. But are we ourselves free? The question is one which demands special attention at the present state of public opinion in Great Britain. The minds of many are wholly absorbed in politics, Yet there is a freedom within the reach of all which few, I am afraid, ever think of. A freedom independent of all political changes. A freedom which neither Queen, Lords and Commons, nor the cleverest popular leaders can bestow. This is the freedom about which I write this day. Do we know anything of it? Are we free? In opening this subject, there are three points which I wish to bring forward. One, I will show in the first place the general excellence of freedom. Two, I will show in the second place the best and truest kind of freedom. Three, I will show in the last place the way in which the best kind of freedom may become your own. Let no reader think for a moment, that this is going to be a political paper. I am no politician. I have no politics but those of the Bible. The only party I care for is the Lord's side. Show me where that is, and it shall have my support. The only election I am very anxious about is the election of grace. My one desire is that sinners should make their own calling and election sure. The liberty I desire above all things to make known and further is the glorious liberty of the children of God. The government I care to support is the government which is on the shoulder of my Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Before Christ I want every knee to bow and every tongue to confess that He is Lord. I ask attention while I canvass these subjects. If you are not free, I want to guide you into true liberty. If you are free, I want you to know the full value of your freedom. 1. The first thing I have to show is the general excellence of freedom. On this point, some readers may think it needless to say anything. They imagine that all men know the value of freedom and that 
to dwell on it is mere waste of time. I do not agree with such people at all. I believe that myriads of Englishmen know nothing of the blessings which they enjoy in their own land. They have grown up from infancy to manhood in the midst of free institutions. They have not the least idea of the state of things in other countries. They are ignorant alike of those two worst forms of tyranny, the crushing tyranny of a cruel military despot and the intolerant tyranny of an unreasoning mob. In short, many Englishmen know nothing of the value of liberty just because they have been born in the middle of it and have never been for a moment without it. I call then on everyone who reads this paper to remember that liberty is one of the greatest temporal blessings that man can have on this side the grave. We live in a land where our bodies are free, so long as we hurt nobody's person or property or character, no one can touch us. The poorest man's house is his castle. We live in a land where our actions are free. So long as we support ourselves, we are free to choose what we will, where we will go, and how we will spend our time. We live in a land where our consciences are free. So long as we hold quietly on our own way and do not interfere with others, we are free to worship God as we please, and no man can compel us to take his way to heaven. We live in a land where no foreigner rules over us. Our laws are made and altered by Englishmen like ourselves, and our governors dwell by our side, bone of our bone and flesh of our flesh. In short, we have every kind of freedom to an extent which no other nation on earth can be equal. We have personal freedom, civil freedom, religious freedom, and national freedom. We have free bodies, free consciences, free speech, free thought, free action, free Bibles, a free press, and free homes. How vast is this list of privileges! How endless the comforts which it contains! The full value of them can never perhaps be known. Well said the Jewish rabbins in ancient days, If the sea were ink and the world parchment, it would never serve to describe the praises of liberty. The want of this freedom has been the most fertile cause of misery to nations in every age of the world. What reader of the Bible can fail to remember the sorrows of the children of Israel when they were bondmen under Pharaoh in Egypt or under Philistines in Canaan? What student of history needs to be reminded of the woes inflicted on the Netherlands, Poland, Spain, and Italy by the hand of foreign oppressors or the Inquisition, who, even in our own time, has not heard of that enormous fountain of wretchedness, the slavery of the Negro race. No misery certainly is so great as the misery of slavery. To win and preserve freedom 
has been the aim of many national struggles which have deluged the earth with blood. Liberty has been the cause in which myriads of Greeks and Romans and Germans and Poles and Swiss and Englishmen and Americans have willingly laid down their lives. No price has been thought too great to pay in order that nations might be free. The champions of freedom in every age have been justly esteemed among the greatest benefactors of mankind. Such names as Moses and Gideon in Jewish history, such names as the Spartan, Leonidas, the Roman Horatius, the German Martha Luther, the Swedish Gustavus Vesa, the Swiss William Tell, the Scotch Robert Bruce and John Knox, the English Alfred and Hampton and the Puritans, the American George Washington, are deservedly embalmed in history and will never be forgotten. To be the mother of many patriots is the highest praise of a nation. The enemies of freedom in every age have been rightly regarded as the pests and nuisances of their times. Such names as Pharaoh in Egypt, Dionysius at Syracuse, Nero at Rome, Charles the Ninth in France, Bloody Mary in England, are names which will never be rescued from disgrace. The public opinion of mankind will never cease to condemn them on the one ground that they would not let people be free. But why should I dwell on these things? Time and space would fail me if I were to attempt to say a tenth part of what might be said in praise of freedom. What are the annals of history but a long record of conflicts between the friends and foes of liberty? Where is the nation upon earth that has ever attained greatness and left its mark on the world without freedom? Which are the countries on the face of the globe at this very moment which are making the most progress in trade, in arts, in sciences, in civilization, in philosophy, in morals, in social happiness? Precisely those countries in which there is the greatest amount of true freedom. Which are the countries at this very day where is the greatest amount of internal misery, where we hear continually of secret plots and murmuring and discontent and attempts on life and property? Precisely those countries where freedom does not exist or exists only in name where men are treated as serfs and slaves and are not allowed to think and act for themselves. No wonder that a mighty transatlantic statesman declared on a great occasion to his assembled countrymen, Is life so dear or peace so sweet as to be purchased at the price of chains and slavery? Forbid it, almighty God! I know not what course others may take, but as for me, give me liberty or give me death. The footnote advises, To prevent mistakes, I think it well to say that the man I refer to is Patrick Henry, an American statesman of the last century.
Let us beware of undervaluing the liberty we enjoy in this country of ours as Englishmen. I am sure there is need of this warning. There is, perhaps, no country on earth where there is so much grumbling and fault-finding as there is in England. Men look at the fancied evils which they see around them and exaggerate both their number and their intensity. They refuse to look at the countless blessings and privileges which surround us or underrate the advantages of them. They forget that comparison should be applied to everything. With all our faults and defects, there is at this hour no country on earth where there is so much liberty and happiness for all classes as there is in England. They forget that as long as human nature is corrupt, it is vain to expect perfection here below. No laws or government whatever can possibly prevent a certain quantity of abuses and corruptions. What's more than I say, let us beware of undervaluing English liberty and running eagerly after everyone who proposes sweeping changes. Changes are not always improvements. The old shoes may have some holes and defects, but the new shoes may pinch so much that we cannot walk at all. No doubt we might have better laws and government than we have. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780 780- Four five zero thirty seven thirty by fax at seven eight zero four six eight ten ninety six or by mail at forty seven ten dash thirty seven A Avenue Edmonton that's E D M O N T O N Alberta abbreviated capital A capital B Canada T six L three T five you may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, 
as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.